Welcome to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. In this podcast, Dr. Liz Kramer speaks to Dr. Crystal Abidin about her fascinating work on social media and Southeast Asia. Hello, I'm here with Dr. Crystal Abedin, a Senior Research Fellow in Internet Studies at Curtin University. Crystal is a digital anthropologist and ethnographer. She researches young people's relationships with internet celebrity, self-curation and vulnerability. Her books include Internet Celebrity, Understanding Fame Online from 2018, Micro-Celebrity Around the Globe, Approaches to Culture, Approaches to Culture of Internet Fame, 2018, also co-edited with Megan Lindsay Brown, and Instagram, Visual Social Media Cultures from 2019 with Tama Lever and Tim Highfield. She's listed on Forbes's 30 Under 30 Asia for 2018 and Pacific Standard 30 Top Thinkers Under 30 from 2016. Crystal is bringing her considerable expertise to our annual ASEAN Forum this year, which focuses on ASEAN and the digital revolution. The forum will look at the key technical innovations and developments taking place in ASEAN countries and the social impact of the digital revolution. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Crystal. Thanks for having me. Um, So Crystal, I'd like to start with some questions about the digital revolution in Southeast Asia from your perspective as both a digital anthropologist and an ethnographer. And my first question is, um, because a lot of your research focuses on vernacular internet cultures, perhaps you could start by mapping out these internet cultures in Southeast Asia for us. Sure. There are quite a few, some that are specific and unique to Southeast Asia, some that also occur worldwide. So going by my area of studies, we have the phenomenon of social media celebrities, influencers, um, commercial meme factories, meme networks, people who produce parody contents, political commentary, comics. But one of my favorites that's very specific to Southeast Asia is the phenomenon of block shops. Block shops? What is that? So block shops debuted in Southeast Asia, especially in the countries Singapore, Malaysia and Thailand and Indonesia in around 2005. They are literally blocks that doubled up as online shops. At that time, very young women were modeling themselves in used clothing that they were hoping to sell online for small amounts of pocket money. So. Um, instead of going to a flea market and peddling your wares there, they were putting up pictures on block platforms, modeling it there and having people buy secondhand clothes off them. This was very unique to Southeast Asia at that time, and it's perhaps one of the most um, strongest origins of the full-blown influencer cultures that we see today. There are several implications of how this works in ASEAN, and I'm happy to chat about that. Okay, well, maybe I might take you up on that offer and ask you to tell us a little bit more about how that works um, across the ASEAN network. For sure. The blog shops that you talk about and the other types of internet celebrities that have come out of Southeast Asia, um, you mentioned that there was um, some particularly unique forms to the region. Um, What is it about Southeast Asia that has given rise to these particular unique forms? Mm. For one, I think the geographical proximity is certainly very useful for young people engaged in these sorts of commerce to travel on a low budget. To give you a specific example, the first generation of block shops that I was tracing in Singapore, in the very first instance, were at first buying their clothes off shops, regular clothes um, in regular shopping malls in Malaysia because of the exchange rate. 
Later on, when they went off to produce their own garments, produce their own designs, they would travel off to Thailand, especially in Bangkok, to get people to manufacture their clothes wholesale for them. But as we were moving up the ecology and the maturity of the block shop industry, many of these small shops, many of these young teenage girls who wanted to expand, also looked to places like Indonesia to collaborate with designers, or to places like the Philippines to grab um, to get a hold of maybe specific textiles and designs you could only locate there. So a combination of the ease of travel, perhaps some sort of um, cultural homophily. Even though we all speak different languages, the basal language being English was helpful. And um, one of the things that my informants always pointed out to me was their youth was an especially important um, factor for their social capital. Right. Whenever the manufacturers, the people who owned factories, saw that they were young and aspiring in Southeast Asia, bringing their business and their manufacturing back to Southeast Asia, they felt like they were very warmly welcome as the youth of tomorrow. Instead of saying um, the next generations who are now producing in other hubs like in China, in Myanmar, or have moved their operations to the U.S., so in the very early days, we could almost say that there was a sense of ASEAN pride just from this one phenomena. So it really has sort of moved across borders and brought people together. Interesting. My next question is: We tend to assume that social media users are keen to brand themselves in a positive light. Um, but is this always the case, or have you found times where negative branding, um, through shame, for example, has been used um, to generate impact via social media? For sure. Whenever we talk about internet celebrities, the stereotype is that we're thinking about influencers. These are your bona fide internet celebrities who are producing content modeled after presentations of their lifestyles for profit. So they may be modeling wares or being ambassadors for brands. But in the larger spectrum of internet celebrity, what we were look, really looking at are people or artifacts who've got high visibility online, and the origin of this visibility can be very diverse. It could be out of positive or negative attention. It could be sustained or transient. It could be intended, accidental, or otherwise. If we look to other spectrums of internet celebrity, for instance, people who accidentally become memes. People who are publicly shamed on forums or websites for wrongdoings. These are crucial times where they have to decide what they want to do with this instantaneous celebrity. Some of them may choose to apologize and shy away from the public eye and wanting to resolve to go back to being private citizens. But we've also seen many instances of people being able to parlay this controversy, rebrand themselves, and then come out as a public figure online, eventually becoming influencers. Wow, are you able to give us an example of that? That sounds like a really fascinating process. For sure. So, without naming names, there have been several instances where maybe young people have said something controversial on social media, and have gotten a lot of flack for it, starting out as ordinary private citizens. Some of them, though, may have publicly come out to have a redemption narrative, to apologize and acknowledge that they've done wrong and they've corrected themselves. And moving forward, chosen to be ambassadors, using their platform to promote or further information and knowledge on a specific cause, perhaps to clear up prejudice, perhaps to clear up stereotypes. But within the extreme end, looking at these professional social media influencers, 
The same is true of them. Many influencers these days no longer shy away from shame or controversy. In fact, we've gotten to a point now in the late 2010s where the industry is so saturated that being perfect, pristine, um, careful is getting really boring. You see these influencers willingly being controversy-seeking, sometimes inviting hate, baiting followers to engage in them with heated debates um, as a way of trying to increase their viewer traffic and mm-hmm. spotlight issues. Some of this may be done more tastefully or more um, creatively, perhaps through parody videos and satire, but others can be downright criticism and comments on Twitter streams, on blog posts that are later rebranded as social experiments in order right. to get the public's reactions. So I, that kind of speaks to the different motivations that people have for being on social media. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, are, are many of are most of the people on there for financial benefit, or what? What kinds of motivations do we see um, amongst different social media influencers or otherwise? For sure, this is really hard to say because there are so many tangibles. What part of the life cycle were you on historically? When did you debut in these five-year gaps? What genre are you in? What intentions do you have? Do you have a job on the side, or is this your rice bowl? Um, but to give us a brief overview of some of these things, there are people who are specific social justice, political, social issue advocates who may run NGOs on the side or have other daytime jobs unassociated to any of these things, who use social media most of the time pro bono in order to seed sentiments and seed activism for these issues. But you also have financially driven and profit oriented influences for whom um, this is a business stirring up, triggering attention in order to get viewership, in order to market some sort of product. So when we think about influencers, again, the stereotype are there. These are people who market you things like hair conditioner and cat food. Mm -hmm. But in the same vein, there are also so many different types of influencers who are pushing off different types of sponsored messages to do with politics, social justice issues or moral debates. So we have to think wider and larger, not just the stereotype of a young, beautiful woman trying to sell you a product. Mm-hmm. We tend to think of innovation as positive, but some of your research suggests that innovation is also taking place under the radar and perhaps is um, not entirely positive. Um, for example, the sponsored messages that you just mentioned. So how are people sliding messages? What are the techniques that are, are used in that process? Right. I'm working on a framework that I'm loosely calling Under the Radar Studies, borrowed from some of my colleagues from the Association of Internet Studies, who recently held a symposium in Urbino in Italy. And there I was trying to convey to them that although we tend to frown upon the apparent frivolity and the vanity of the content that influencers put out, if we examine their modality, the medium, and the modes in which they push out messages. There is so much creative value here. Fundamentally, regardless of what message influencers are trying to sell us, they are experts in science communication. Given that internet culture is so saturated and fast-moving, they have this unique ability to cut through all the white noise and still deliver a message to you that you may come back wanting more of. So with these under-the-radar studies, I was studying things like um, under... um, 
underhand methods or astroturfing strategies. So for instance, the increasing knowledge of how algorithms work, or maybe even the folklore and the belief of how we think algorithms work. Strategies to do with gaming them, strategies to do with improving clickbait, trying to monetize SEO, spotlighting and shadowing. But well, on a what's more, SEO? Right, SEO being um, the search engine optimization. Right. In the 90s, th these would be computer experts who would encourage you to spam a web page with all these keywords in white font against a white background so the human eye can't see it, but the machine eye will read this page as if it's got a lot of keywords and is really relevant, so it ranks you higher on a search like Google. There are analog versions of this by influencers today. Um, for instance, if they are wanting to speak on a certain issue that doesn't coincide with a whole list of controversies that popped up in the last three days. In the long preamble of a YouTube vlog or an Instagram post or a blog post, they may signpost these things as trigger words that teach the algorithms to surface this post, um, keyword jamming them, and then slowly shift away to look at the thing they're really wanting to look at. Or generic clickbait. For instance, knowing that sex sells, so putting a very provocative image of yourself so that people will linger on your Instagram post rather than scrolling through, and then going to the captions, finding something completely unrelated, but you've managed to capture their attention. Right. When we think of the digital revolution, we're often thinking about big data. So scraping retweet numbers, looking at how many times a YouTube video has been viewed or something along those lines, but not everything can be captured by big data. What are the other forms of visibility on the internet and what intangible qualitative aspects of the internet are we not paying enough attention to? Right. There's a lot of amazing work out there today on algorithmic visibility. In one of my prior works from um, the mid-2010s though, I like to use the vocabulary of visibility labors. It's almost like the parable, not the parable, the fairy tale of Goldilocks. How much do you put out there? Do you show too much? Do you show too little? Who do you want to be spotlighted by? How much of yourself do you want to get picked up? Visibility labor now plays with the combination of ideas between algorithmic machine eyeballs and human eyeballs. Because not only do you have to understand how you're surfaced on the background or the climate of social media, you also need to know what is able to hook and entice viewers who mm -hmm. are lingering there anyway. So big data is great for helping us understand metrics, but there is so much gamification and so much subversive use that cannot be counted in this manner, especially if you're working in contentious areas of work, especially if you're wanting only to speak to a specific subculture of people. So here we're looking at things like um, paralanguages, a combination of internet languages that may not be legible to you unless you've got the literacies using things like memes, emoji, emoticon, gifs. We are also talking about social steganography. How are you hiding messages in plain sight? How is it that if I produce a parody video for someone who is unaware of Singapore's culture, this may look like a Beyonce parody video. For someone who lives in Singapore and is unaware of minority rights and racism, this may be a localized piece of comedy for Singaporeans. But for someone who's lived through all the subtle political commentary going in there, that is a piece of political artwork or even um, a combination of advocacy and political entertainment trying to get your attention. So there are all these different facets that require highly contextual knowledges 
whether it's cultural, youth literacies or internet literacies in order for you to decode and get to, despite them all being publicly available on the internet. Wow, so there is a lot going on underneath the surface as well. Yeah, young people are very creative and innovative, so props to them and all the work they're producing. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.